Hey, y'all, thanks for tuning in to the Weird One Podcast. This space, it's a collection of talks ranging anywhere from sermons from our ministry, creative thoughts, breakout sessions at things like Weird One Conference, as well as some inside scoops on leadership. We hope it helps you. If you want to keep up to date with everything Weird One, you can go to weirdoneyouth.com or follow us on social at WAO Youth. We hope you're blessed. Last week, we talked about, we started, we kicked this off. And we talked about sort of the boundary lines of Christianity. We talked about this idea of what it means to be true, authentic, sincere, or counterfeit. And we used a specific word. Does anybody remember? It started with an O. Orthodox. Hey, it it wasn't totally wasted. If you need to remember, I made a a nice little, like, way to remember. Just think of your orthodontist if you've ever had braces. Like, I can picture my orthodontist right now, and I... Hope I never see him again. That's how awful but getting braces was. But you picture your orthodontist watching a National Geographic oh, documentary. Yeah, I was just going to say he's rifling through his documents trying to find, like, your oh. file. Orthodox. Or, like, someone doxes him. Like, they say where his, what his address is and they yeah. out him online. Like, swat him. This is your orthodontist watching a documentary while being doxed, filing through his documents. So that's what we talked wow. about last week. If you missed that, then I don't know where you were and why you weren't paying attention, but you should probably go rewatch it because that's definitely what we talked about. Yeah. But we discussed Orthodox Christianity, counterfeit Christianity, and sort of this idea that like any worldview, any ideology is by its very nature exclusive. The world's peddling this idea that like inclusivity is the way forward, but the reality is that it doesn't matter what you believe, whatever you believe, by believing it, you disbelieve other things and thereby create this idea of exclusivity around the ideology that you're proponent of. So this week, what we, uh, what we were thinking about, talking about, praying about, is what C.S. Lewis calls the problem of pain. Now, I know this is, like a, this is kind of like an apologetical topic, but it's also a topic that Christians have wrestled with yes. for forever. And it's a deep one. I think the, the idea of where, why is there this problem of pain has been such a prevalent topic in actual like theology talk they actually named like a whole section of theology just on this idea Uh, they call it theodicy so like think of like the odyssey right the book or whatever it kind of sounds like that's all you're saying theodicy Theodicy. it just sounds like you're saying it weird but this idea they've actually coined the term theodicy is the entire study of theological study of the problem of pain and a good god in yeah. correspondence to that pain. And so that was, the, you know, as we were going through the questions that were left over from collision, that's really where this sort of spawned out of in a lot of ways. Like, one of the things that repeatedly we were seeing you guys wrestling with, take your, take your right hand, just punch yourself in the kneecap or, like, the top of the knee. <laughs> What'd you learn today? I hit myself. Just, just give yourself a little, just sometimes, you know, Paul says he Good. beats his body and he makes Get it like, like just, just give yourself, like, why does that hurt? Why? Like, if God is good, why did you just feel what you just felt? I know that's a dumb example, but that was what we saw repeated over and over in a lot of your guys' questions. These are things that I think you guys are struggling with, and it's a valid question. It is, like PT was saying, it is, like, one of the questions that theologians, church fathers, like, men and women of God for hundreds and thousands of years have wrestled with this question. Uh, If God is good, why why is there pain? One of the old church fathers, like I said, church uh, history is like metal. His name was Origen. 
right? If you ever heard of that word origin, like we have a ministry here called origin. His name was literally origin. It was spelt a little bit different, but he wrestled with this idea of a lot. This was like something that he was like really wrestling with. And, and, and just in his like, uh, uh, his understanding of God, like he had to come to terms with, with this idea. And he was kind of a brain. So he came to terms with it like in a brain way. And there's almost like that head and the heart. There's a lot of times where it's just like, there is the heart aspect where God, I have to trust you. But then there's that head aspect where I just don't understand why. Why is this happening? And that's usually the question that you hear anytime someone's facing any type of trial or any type of pain. Why? Why is this happening? Why me, first off? And then why does this happen to everyone else? You see something bad happening, and it's not like, oh, what's the problem? You can ask that, but in the end, most people go, why is this the problem? Why is this happening? And so, like he said, uh, people have been wrestling with this for forever. And just a sidebar, I really love the idea that um, I hope that we're smart, but if Christians have been wrestling about this or talking about this idea for thousands of years, there are more likely going to be smarter people who have wrestled with this topic that I can glean from. And this is one of the reasons why I love church history so much. It's like, yes, we're supposed to intake the Bible and the way I like to describe it is like you and me, if, if pastors right here, we're being discipled horizontally. But we can also be discipled through time as well by all the whoa, people. Whoa, I feel like we need to just like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. Okay, what do you mean whoa. by that? That felt a little like interstellar. I mean, yeah, like kind of. Okay. Like he's in the Discipled through the, yeah. time. Back like, that train up. and I'm being discipled it. through time because, you know, I could read Martin Luther. I could read these old school guys. And the way that they, the way that they're talking about God and they're wrestling through these things, who are and they're way smarter than me, they they know more. Maybe they've experienced things that I haven't experienced, yep. and that's what we can get when we're being discipled by one another. We're being discipled, I would say, horizontally, but also vertically from God and vertically through time. Like when I read these people and I see that the way they love Jesus, it makes me want to love Jesus. And like you ever talk to someone and they're just like on fire, you're like, bro. I got to go sell my house now and go do, you know what I mean? Go do street evangelism or yeah. something like that because you're just, you're feeding off their love for Jesus. Now we get to do that with a guy thousands of years ago who we never talked to. We get to see not only just his heart for the Lord, but the things that they wrestled with. And that's just like my plug. Uh, show up on, on Sunday. It's going to be fun. But also just my plug to get you interested. Uh, I, I'm just peddling my interests on you. Why do I love it? Because I can be discipled from these guys who are dead and they're in heaven and I can be discipled through their rights and their wrongs. I could see everything they had and everything they give me. And so that's honestly one of the reasons why we'll bring up people, especially old people who like are from thousands of years. Why do we bring them up? Because they were on a journey to discover this way before we were. And we just want to learn because they're probably way smarter than us. And so as we talk, tackle this subject, this is something that obviously Christians have been have been dealing with from a head standpoint, but also a heart standpoint, so much so that they made their own whole branch of theology. And not only have they been doing it for hundreds and thousands of years, but the people you're talking about, the people that like really get you like geeking out, these are not people who like, you know, attended church and read the word and like maybe went to seminary. These are the yeah. people who like, this is what they spent 30, 40 years devoting day in day out their whole lives to these yeah. are some people who like decided to sell everything and just go live in a monastery and just like study who god was these are people who like their lives played it out so i think that's really that's an interesting concept being discipled through time 
It essentially is what the Bible is. Yep. The Bible is God spoke through people to disciple us through time. To, he's discipling us through people that we'll never meet. Well, mm. until we're in heaven. Yeah. Until we're in heaven, we'll be like, bro, you look way different than I thought you did. Paul, your letters, <laughs> man, you were so <laughs> intense. What was going through your head? It's okay, crazy. so there's, there's this guy that I wanted to sort of kick things off with. This is not a, a believer. This was a Greek philosopher named Epicurus that he had this, this thought process, this ideology that his followers became known as Epicurean, you know, Epicureans. Basically, he started this sort of ideology that be, people began to follow. And one of the things he really peddled and sort of tried his best to break down was if there's these paradoxes, these, these you guys know what a paradox is? It's when you buy you Doc Martens and you get two of them. It's a paradox. Guys, we didn't rehearse that. That made you if laugh. If we had rehearsed that, that'd be so much sadder than it was. It was actually pretty funny. Uh, it's better than what I had in the moment. Like, do you truly know? Do you have an actual definition for a paradox? It's it's two logical. Uh, what would it be? What is the actual definition? Define it would be paradox. two things that are logically incongruent but both true. Two true incongruent logical thoughts. Got to turn my volume. That would be a paradox. We'll you got if, it. We'll see Siri? if Siri will give it to us. Define paradox. Pair of Doc Martens. Whatever. She doesn't want to say it. But it's a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may be proved to be well-founded or true. So it's basically two things that seem really incongruent with one another. They, don't, they seem to contradict one another, but they both seem to be true separately. And so he breaks this down. He goes, let's just sort of follow the, the, the train of thought, okay? Because this is what you're going to either encounter through your own personal doubt or the voice of the enemy or through someone that you're going to have a conversation with at some point that you're trying to minister to. If God is willing to prevent evil but is not able to, then he's not all-powerful. If he doesn't know of the evil, then he's not all-knowing. If he knows of the evil and is able to prevent it, but he's not willing to, then he's not all good. How many of you? You don't have to raise your hand. But how many of you, you hear stuff like that and you kind of go, oh no, oh no, please don't call on me. Please don't ask for hands right now. Please don't, please don't ask for hands to be raised. This is one of those things that I think a lot of people, it can really like trip them up because it seems like there's a lot of valid things in it. Because it is true. Like if God is, un if he's unwilling to prevent evil, like, if he's unwilling to do that, then I would say, I would put an asterisk by it. If that were truly, truly true, then, yeah, he's not good. If he doesn't know about evil, then he's not all-knowing. If he couldn't stop the evil, then he's not all-powerful. The problem is we come in and we go, well, God is all-knowing, God is all-powerful, power, and God is, all go God is good. Like, the, the very nature of the scriptures is the fact that, like, God is good. I'll tell you, like, the reality is, like, what changed my life when, like, I had an encounter with Jesus that actually transitioned from, like, head knowledge to, like, this is going to change everything about who I am. It was that. It was just the simple understanding that God is good. It was so radical to me. It was like, if I just, like, when I accepted that God is good and he wasn't just mad at me, it literally changed everything about my life. But if he's good, why do we constantly see all of these things in the world? An all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good God, this is one of the things Epicurus says, an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good God could and would destroy Satan 
and evil. That's sort of the logical conclusion he comes to. Is an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good God could and would destroy Satan. And he will. I think uh, I've heard a lot of people put this analogy. It's like if someone's about to fall and you have full ability to catch them, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? You are powerful enough to reach out your hand and grab them. They're about to fall, and it's going to hurt, and it's going to be, get, it's going to be obnoxious. Like They're going to be screaming. Ah, it hurts, you know what I mean? Uh, they're going to be in a lot of pain. Why would you, the bystander, allow them to go through that pain if you're standing there and you're just watching them? Now, I think we need to uh, break down this thought to process. To answer your question, there's a couple different reasons. Yeah, because you this, pushed them. I do, well, I do this with my kids all the time. <laughs> sometimes it's just entertaining. Yeah, that is sometimes. Dude, that you, is true. Nothing's better than seeing like someone really. Fall. What we're gonna get into though is a lot Unless of times. It's you. A lot of times there's a lesson inherent in the fall. Yeah. And I know that's ultimately what we're going to break down. I know that's kind of the obvious elephant in the room. There's a lesson in, in a lot of pain. But a lot of times I just let them fall because I know that then they'll learn how to not fall the next time. That's mm-hmm. part of it. But sometimes it's just funny. What were you saying? No, that's, I think that in the end there are a lot of like these explanations to these like individual circumstances. But what he's saying, what Epicurus is saying is like, how come I see all these bad things and God is all powerful, all good, and he's not intervening? And, and I think we've all probably heard this from somebody in our life. Uh, I've heard this so many times. I would do Bible study in jail, and they'd be like, oh, you know, I don't believe, you know. If, that's essentially their thought process. And what I loved is I'd be watching them, and I'm like, dude, you're in jail, bro. <laughs> you're part of the problem. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and I think what we need to do is we need to define some terms yeah. because people like to make this claim without ever looking at themselves. Like, it's like if you were the perfect person and you wanted to make the claim about why everything's bad, you're terrible also, by the way. You're, in, you're included in on this terribleness. If you were perfect, maybe you might have the right to point a finger. Uh, but in the end, we're all awful. We're terrible people. We've done awful things. And even if we haven't maybe, like, pushed the kid, maybe we thought about it. Man, that would be so nice to just push that guy. Like, dude, just knock him over, right? You all right? We all, I think. Okay. I'm just getting, venting some of this yep. out, you know, some of this pent-up rage. I try this. Yeah, this okay. helps. That works, the pain. But we need to break down a couple of these thoughts, like when they say, if God is good, why does he prevent pain or suffering or evil? I think we need to break down a term is what is good? And what is evil? And what is evil? This, this is the first thing that I felt was fascinating when, when, like, reading and studying this paradox, because ultimately... It becomes easy to go, okay, if he's, if he's willing to prevent evil but he's not able to, then he's not all-powerful. And we go, we know, he's all, we know he's able to. We know he's capable of doing that. But if he knows about it and is able to prevent it but he's not willing to, then he's not all good. That's the yeah. claim. And I want to make sure that's really clear. We're not quoting a church father or the Bible here. We're quoting a secular Greek philosopher. So this is something to contend with. This is not something to just receive as truth. This is something that we're going to pick apart. So I want to make sure that's really clear that this doesn't get, like, snipped out in a reel and it makes it seem like we're, like, <laughs> worshiping Epicurus. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's the hard part, though. Yeah. If, he's, if, he's, if he knows about it and he's able, but he's not willing, then he's not, then he's not good, right? That's the, it becomes easy to go, well, well, then, well, then he's not good. And what I thought was really fascinating is, as, I was, as I was looking at this, is I, as I thought to myself, okay, I actually felt like the Lord said, okay, flip it. Flip it. We go, okay, Lord, if you're really good and you're all-powerful and, you, and you, you're all-knowing and you know something bad is happening, why didn't you stop the Holocaust? Why didn't you stop this evil thing? 
And there's like sort of an air of like, uh, I think there's good intentions behind that. Like I think a lot of these things, there's good intentions behind it. We want to see people not have to suffer. There's sort of a good heart behind it. But the reality is if you flip that and God goes, okay, you just asked me to intervene and stop evil. You want the Holocaust to never have happened. And a lot of people would agree with that. It's, it's like God wanted the Holocaust not to happen. But you're now asking him to intervene, go against man's free will, and to stop evil. So now you have to define what's evil. Because now God goes, okay, you want me to stop evil. And what you mean is, God, I want you to stop the Holocaust, but I want you to let me keep sleeping with my girlfriend. What you mean is, I want you to stop world wars. I want you to do away with famine, but I want to keep looking at porn. What you mean is, I want you to, like, take this evil tyrant off the throne, but I want to keep smoking. Like, what we mean is, okay, like, God, go take care of the big evils. But you start going down that road, and now he goes, okay, what's evil? Now, every single evil thing that any human being were to ever try to do, he goes and intervenes. The minute someone's about to get tipsy, he just, like, makes them start vomiting. The minute you're about to, like, go too far with your boyfriend or girlfriend, suddenly there's a straitjacket around your arms and legs, and you're like, you can't move. Can you imagine this? Two people living together, they're in their 30s, but they're unmarried. Like, they're full-grown adults, unmarried, living together, and suddenly they just, like, are both in straitjackets and sleeping bags, and, like, it's all <laughs> zipped up and, like, sewn to their necks. Like, not, like, to their necks, like, sewn around their necks. That would be too, that's a little intense. That's a little intense. But imagine that. That's ultimately what you're asking. If you're asking for God to intervene on behalf of someone's free will to stop some evil, what you've just opened the door to is him intervening on behalf of anyone's free will to stop anything he deems evil. Because you don't get to go by your definition of evil if you're asking him to do the work. You're asking him to do the work of stopping evil, which means he's the one who gets to define evil. And the problem is too many of us don't define evil the way he defines evil. If you start going down that road, like, like the whole premise of human history, what he built it all upon was making sure there was two trees in the garden. He made sure that they had a choice. He is so completely committed. And this is what I think Epicurus sort of mis, he mistakes the reality that God is so committed to free will that in that, in that, evil is a natural byproduct of humans getting to do what they want to do. I've always said like, and I believe this to be true, God is the being in the universe that gets what he wants the least. Because you and I are busy getting what we want most of the time. He doesn't end up being able to get what he wants. He never wanted sin in the garden. He never wanted death to be a part of the equation. He never wanted any of the evil things you can, like, think of anything evil you can think of throughout human history. It was not his will. It was not his desire. And he does plan this all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good God that Epicurus said could and would destroy Satan and evil. He will. It's part of the plan. He will absolutely destroy it. But it's not going to be on the screen, but 2 Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Meaning, okay, if God's good, why hasn't he stopped these things yet? Because he sees the big picture of all of human history, not just the tens of, you know, the, the few decades you're going to live on this planet. Like, he sees the whole picture from beginning to end, and he sees it simultaneously. So he's not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's 2 Peter 3, 9. His desire is that he would be slow and patient with mankind. Why? 
so that they could actually come to repentance because he does not want anyone to perish. Like, that's God's will, yeah. that no one would perish. I also think, too, I just, I, I'm going to make somewhat of a generalization here when you're talking to this type of person, um, and I'm not, like, condemning them or anything like that. I'm just saying it's just kind of funny, the, the uh, contradiction in this train of thought. It's, God, why don't you stop suffering? So what God does is he sends his son to die so that you don't have to face an eternity of suffering. And then they go, well, you're just fear-mongering. Or they go something like, oh, well, I don't believe that, that mumbo-jumbo about hell. And it's like, it's so funny. It's like, you really want him to stop it. So he's like, okay, I know that this temporary suffering, you know, that, that sucks. It's not fun. Uh, but what I really care about is the fact that you're about to enter into an eternity of suffering for, for forever, where a million years is literally the start of eternity. A, thousand, a billion years doesn't touch the nature of eternity, and I want to stop you from having to torment and be in suffering that entire time. And then they're like, oh, whoa, 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 I don't believe in that. And so it's just funny uh, that when it comes down to this idea of stopping someone from being in torment or stopping someone from experiencing pain, God, in his goodness, is going, hmm, I want to stop that pain. I want to stop the pain of being away from me and being in a place of torment. And I think that there's this idea, um, some of the early church fathers, when they were wrestling with this idea, they used this word. They said, they said uh, evil is a privation of good. And what that means is very simple. Evil isn't actually a thing. It's not a thing. It's like darkness. Darkness doesn't actually exist. Darkness is the lack of existing, the lack of light. So if you turn off the light switch, you're not turning on a darkness switch. Does that make sense? It's not like, oh, let me hit the dark switch to get oh, the light off. You can't walk into a light room and turn on a flash dark. Yeah, like light, what happens is light in its nature, the lack of light creates darkness because of its lack. Instead of uh, evil being a thing, evil is either a perversion of good or a lack of good. And I think that we can really, when we wrestle with this idea, I think C.S. Lewis talked about this, where when you look at everything that ever exists, um, and you look at the root of that existence, you'll find a good thing. For example, maybe uh, Hitler, right? We'd all probably classify that as bad, right? Everyone would be like, unanimously, bad, okay? He's bad, right? But Hitler existed. He existed, right? Is existence bad or good? Good. Like, I'm glad that things exist. It's a good thing. So at the root of it, it's good. But over time, it perverted away from the goodness. Uh, and and C.S. Lewis uses this analogy of like a, a, a keyboard. And, and what happens is you can be, there's no such thing as a wrong note on the keyboard. It's only a wrong note in the timing that you play it. And so if, if I'm trying to play a good song and I play the wrong note, you'd be like, whoa, dude, don't play that. Don't play that. What he's saying is, and it's base. Everything that is has a root of goodness, has a root of something that's, that's good. And evil is only a perversion of the good or a lack of the good. And when we think about hell, too, this was actually one of the questions. Like, why? Why hell? You know, and, and part of the answer is hell wasn't originally created for us, but why is it a place of torment? And uh, I love this theological thought that hell, it's not like God went in and started, like, striking matches and, like, <laughs> Lighting the fire, so he's like, oh, I'm going to really get like them to Like he's trying burn. to get a Boy Scout back. Yeah, like, <laughs> oh, I'm going to really get these guys. Ha, ha, ha. I, I think it's more of God left, and if God is all good, then there's nothing yeah, but bad. Good. 
And so anywhere he removes, you know how he created a hell? He removed himself from a place where God isn't at all. Mm-hmm. And if God's not there, all that can exist is darkness. If you remove light completely from a room, all that can exist, the lack of light, is darkness. It's not like God, God, that's why God can't create evil. All he can do is remove himself from the situation in order for evil to then come in. And we see that happen in a lot of instances in the Bible where God basically removed him. He's like, all right, I'm out, especially with the, uh, the, uh, the Israelites. He'd be like, okay, I'm going to give you over to what you desire. And when he gives us over to what we desire, what happens is darkness comes in with that desire. Yeah. And darkness comes in. We're inviting darkness in, and then at the same time we're going, God, why is it this way? Why is there so much pain? He's like, okay, let me come in and help. And then we push him away. And, and we look at the state of the world today, and we can say, like, oh, look at all this evil. Look at all these things. Like, look at the way, you know, all these countries are treating people or the Holocaust. And we, and we circumvent the problem of, of why that evil is there in the first place. We just blame God mm-hmm. as if I had nothing to do with it or humanity had nothing to do with it. And, God, why, like, why did you do this? And I believe, in a sense, God's like, you push me out. Yeah. Like, I was giving you exactly what you wanted. And evil is a privation of good. It's a lack of good. And so when we look at this problem of pain or even this problem of suffering, because I think we need to distinguish the two. Yeah, go ahead. I think suffering and pain, or suffering and evil, I would say, sorry, mm-hmm. are both painful, but they're different. And the way I've heard some people kind of make this distinction is suffering is just the cause of us being limited people. What I mean by that is you're not going to live forever. Everyone's going to die. And everyone's going to stub their toe. And you know why? Because you're a human. Like, you're not, you're not uh, Superman, dude. Like, Clark Kent. Like, you're not him. So it's going to hurt. And that's just the nature of being human. And we were even talking about this. Adam and Eve in the garden, they might not have felt like everything that we feel in this way, but they were limited, right? They there's nothing in there that says that they grew wings and flew. So they had limitations. God's creation has limitations. But now, imagine his creation without the covering of his goodness, and those limitations will just play out. If you walk into a woods and a tree falls on you, that's, that's because you can't look around and be like, that's evil. All you can say is, that sucks. <laughs> Jesus because actually spoke to that. It's not going to be on the screen again, but like, there's a moment where, where they go, he's healing a man, and, mm-hmm. and they go, Lord, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? He goes, no one sinned. He was born blind that the works of God might be displayed in his life. And then yeah. he follows it up and goes, it's like the, to- the tower in Siloam who fe- that fell, yeah. and I think it killed like 18 people. His point is it, they were neither righteous nor unrighteous. The, the point wasn't they were good or bad people. Yeah. The point wasn't they were followers of God. So they escaped the tower falling on them, or they were not followers of God, so the tower fell on them for punishment. The point is, he says, the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. Like yep. the, the point is that we exist because of the fall of man, because of the fall of Adam and Eve. We exist in a cursed world where cursed things take place, where things outside the will of God take place. And yep. that's, I think, something that's hard for people to wrap their heads around because it's like, well, he's God. Nothing happens that he doesn't want to happen. That's so unfair. I am, a, he, he self-describes almost exclusively as a father. That is how he chose to reveal himself. He sent his son 
so that those that believe and receive him, John 1, 5 says, he gave the right to become sons and daughters, meaning he sent his son so that you and I could become other sons and daughters, okay? He self-describes as a father. That's his chosen metaphor, that we might become his children. I have two children. I have three children. One is just playing hide really good game of hide-and-seek right now for another <laughs> month or so. Guys, that was actually a really good joke, and I just came yeah. up with it right there. So if we can just, like, maybe give me, like, I thought that was funny. No, 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 you, that was too much, too much, too much, too much. Tone it back, Nova, tone it back. <laughs> but I have three children, and most of the things they do are against my will. Like, most of what they do, I don't want them to do. Think about your own life. You have parents. Yeah, you get where I'm going with this? Think of the number of things you have done with their last name with the first name they gave you, with their money that they put either on your card or in your wallet. And think about whether or not they would be pleased with the things you did with those resources. It's no different with God. You, bearing the name of your parents, bearing the resources of your parents, can do tons, are doing tons of things against their will that they would not want you to do. And it would be easy, it, it is easy, because if somebody finds out, they're going to go, you were raised better than this. When somebody finds out what you're doing, they're like, it's a stain on your parents because you did something now with their name and with their resources. In reality, your parents are going to be like, I'm going to kill you yeah. because I told you not to do I, that. It, and you're grounded. And I'm taking away that <laughs> money. And I'm taking away that car. And I'm changing your name. Okay? Because you know intrinsically it's a poor argument to say that because something happened, God wanted it to happen. Just because two yeah. human beings, even two human beings of the same household, take it a step further. A lot of times people do this. They go, well, I'm not part of the church because Christians are crappy. Christians are mean to each other. Well, yeah. Well, I don't believe in God because Christians suck. Yeah, absolutely that's true. What, is, what do those two things have to do with one another? I'm confused. I believe in God because Christians suck, because I recognize that th I'm not, I'm not a I'm not a, I'm not a Tylerian, 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 hey. Tylerian, I mean Jillian is, I guess. Tylerian. I am a Christian. My, my basis for how I live is not based on him, it's based on Christ, it's based on Jesus, and Jesus has done nothing to me that went against the will of God. Jesus literally came and said, I do nothing of my own will, I only do the will of the Father. That was his whole point. Why? Because he was the direct uh, he was the fix to Adam and Eve. He was the fix to all humanity. Where all humanity, before him and after him, we've spent our time doing our will. One man came and did exclusively the will of the Father. And that's why we base our lives on him. That's why we're Christians and not anyone else. Because it, it's not fair to say, well, I find pain and suffering within the church, so that means God doesn't exist. I find pain and suffering in the world that God created, so that means God doesn't exist. No, that just means that God needs to exist more in that situation. That just yeah. means that those people in that moment need to pull God's will into the equation. They need to stop what they're doing, and they need to go, God, what do you want here? Because if they did that, what you'd find is the fruit of the Spirit. When that happens, when you stop and you go, God, what do you want? And you actually, like, read the word, or you hear from him, or you get good, good godly wisdom, and then you go and apply it. You know what happens? Without you even having, without you, you being the one to produce it, suddenly comes love, joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These things that are birthed and exclusively come from the Spirit of God himself, those are the things that become present when his will is enacted in that moment. But most of the time, most of us spend our time getting what we want so that God can't. You know, I'm reminded of when you were talking about that, like, father analogy. It's like, I can't remember where it's at in the Old Testament, but basically God's talking to Israelites, being like, dude, you're embarrassing me in front of all the other nations. <laughs> yeah. Like, you're terrible. And uh, I, I, I Why are you the way can, that you we are? We can easily do this, like, game with God where we're, we're consistently expecting him, God, meet these needs for me. Yep. And in return that's when I'll give you my life, when you do these things. And uh, when I've talked to people through this idea where they'll be like, uh, you know, if God's real, do this, or God's real, why does this happen? Essentially what they're doing is they're placing themselves above God. And, and where does the, I think the question is, where's the line start? God's got to give us free will or none at all. Mm -hmm. And, and fully good. free will or none at all. Because what happens is, and, and a miracle, I want to make this clear, is not a lack of God's free will. It's him going, you know what, I will grant your request based upon his will, not mine. But anyway. A miracle is actually the moment when God steps in to, to show you the thing that looks most like heaven. Yeah. Right? So, like, here's this thing that God wants. He wants disease gone. There's no disease in heaven. You know what God's will looks like? Heaven. That's what it looks like. God's heaven, if anything goes against God's will, he throws it out. That's literally how hell and Lucifer and the demons started. Someone wanted something other than God's will in heaven, so he gave him the boot, okay? Earth is not the same situation. Heaven is exclusively a place of the will of God. Mm -hmm. And so when you see something miraculous take place, even just take when you see salvation take place in someone's life and you see the fruit of the Spirit start to bubble up in their lives, suddenly this person who was one way is suddenly something different and it's not fully uh, describable or explainable. What's happening is the will of God has been accepted in that person's life. When you see a miracle take place and healing takes yeah. place, he goes, you want a piece of heaven? This is how it is here. This is how it is in my eternal presence. Let me give it to you. It's not that he you suddenly, want piece you want a piece of me? I'll give it to you. Right in the power, right in the kisser. Like, it's not that suddenly God was like, you know what? I don't hate these guys. They're doing really well. It's that he goes, okay, and and, and why miracles take place yeah. or don't take place is a totally different discussion. Yeah. But when God does that thing, what he's doing is, uh, C.S. Lewis says, prayer doesn't change God, it changes us. Uh -huh. what, what's happening is not suddenly God be becomes good and he does some good thing for us. When that unlocks, he goes, okay, take a piece of, of my will. Because, take a piece of heaven with you. Because what can happen is when you get this mentality, it's like, God, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do this? What you're doing is you're placing your will or your idea or what meets your convenience at the forefront. And, what, and, and people would be like, well, clearly God wouldn't, he doesn't want this wrong thing to happen, but can, does he have the opportunity to fix it? Yes, he does, but in the end, he knows the end. He knows eternity, he knows where that's going to get me. And so I have to submit first to his will, because if I don't, what I'm doing is, and, and people can't draw the line, what I'm doing is I'm saying, God, you meet my needs. Okay, he meets my needs. Let's say I say, God, you know, let, let this happen. It happens. Wow, that's amazing. It's a miracle. It's awesome. And then I go, you know, let this happen. And I start actually taking him and using him like a genie in a bottle. 
instead of submitting myself to his will, he now has to submit to my will. Because now that he did this thing, now I want you to meet this need and this need and this need. And they go from needs, because we do this as humans, we blur the, the, the line between wants and needs super, super bad. We blur, the, like, you know what we need right now? I need Starbucks. I really need Starbucks. If I don't have Starbucks right now, I'm going to die. Yeah, and so we blur this idea of need. So when God says he'll, he'll meet your need, we look at this, and, and that, uh, the blurring of con- need, need to convenience will happen so quickly, where it's like, God, now I want you to do this, and God, now do this, and he's just this cosmic maid who's there to clean up my mess and make my life convenient, which is the complete opposite of God. And so if I submit myself to God and say, God, I, I'm petitioning before you. I'm asking you of this. If you meet my petition, you are good. If you don't, you are good because I have to trust in your will, your thoughts that are higher than mine. And, and this, this idea has to first settle into our heart before we can get, wrap our mind around these ideas of suffering and of evil. We define suffering. Suffering is just the cause of our limitation. We're limited. And evil, evil comes from someone or something being purposely put upon you to cause you suffering for no reason. I, I like that definition. It's suffering for a, uh, a chaotic or no reason, I guess, would be the best way. So put some, some like, examples to that. I punch you as hard as I can in the face. So let's even go, like, historically, like, suffering, hurricane, yes. typhoon. Evil. It's just the nature of the curse on the earth. Yes. Evil. Evil uh, Hitler. Hitler. Yeah. Uh, Pol Pot. Mao's China, yeah. evil um, uh, Stalin, yeah. those, those eras, uh, evil uh, Genghis Khan, right? These things, and you notice there's usually a person attached to evil. Yes. Uh, you can't attach that curtain to evil or that tree that I think fell that, I think or that light to, to evil. Yeah, it has to be. If it's evil, it has to be a done by a being. Yeah, yes. that's a good way to put it. And even like in the way we, we classify animals, like if an animal... Bites, my dog bites me, I'm not like, you're morally, you know, doing something wrong. No, I'd say, ow, dude, and I'd kick it or something. I don't know. But that's interesting. If, if Carl bites you, that's Which, suffering. He won't because he's a good boy. He won't bite me. Your stupid people. snake might bite you. Yeah, it, <gasps> Do you still have that snake oh, after dude, you got dude, married? Dude, dude, dude. Jillian, no, you yeah, accept? Yeah. What's wrong with you? Funny story. I hadn't fed him in a long time. It was like four weeks. Which is not that abnormal, but I, and I opened up his, his bin, and dude, he like stood up this high. No joke. Like, just na, like na, 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 na. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if he bites me. Okay, so if Carl bites you, yeah. that's suffering. Uh-huh. Because that is a non-conscious being. Uh-huh. Like, like that is a soul-ish animal, meaning a dog is soul-ish in the sense that it is different than a gnat. It's different than a fly. You could step on a fly and you'd feel yeah. nothing. A dog would be considered philosophically a soul-ish animal. Okay, so suffering comes just by his nature. He's just a dumb animal. He's going going to bite you. That's suffering. But if you kick him, Mm -hmm. that's evil. Yeah. Do you understand the difference? Sometimes. Well, for the sake of our argument, don't make it confusing. Like you kicking the dog. Kicks dogs. (laughs) Yeah. You you kicking your dog. That's evil because you are. No, and let's specifically say. You know, if if Jillian trips and falls into you yeah. and get, you get a giant bruise, that's suffering. Mm-hmm. If you turn around and clock her, 
That's evil. Because let's, let's make sure it's now between. No, no, he's saying, like, give her the time. Like, no. Like, the <laughs> I'm saying let's just make it, between, let's make it between two human beings. So that the, you, can pick the, you can pick apart the argument if you say, well, it's just a dog. Like, if it's between two human yes, beings. Yes, yes. If it's an accidental thing or it's just a part of the curse. Yep. That's suffering. But it becomes evil when you willingly, yep. intentionally participate in inflicting suffering on someone you, else. You need intentionality for evil to exist. With like, no purpose. And I think yes. you said that. That's yes. important. Because it distinguishes between discipline mm -hmm. and just evil. Yes. Evil is just for the sake of caught, like Causing some men harm. just want to watch yes. the world burn. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And Dark so Knight, 2008. What can, what can happen is we can look at things like that are just there because we're limited beings. We're, we are flesh, so we will die. And, and God, why didn't you intervene? So God intervenes, and what happens? We're still going to die. Like, it, as, as tragic as it is for some, certain things to happen, because we're just existing in a place where we're limited and we're eventually going to die and entropy exists and the world is falling apart and we're trying to build it up as it's falling it's apart. It's one of the most fascinating things about miracles. Yeah. It doesn't matter what he heals you from, you're still going to die. Yeah. Lazarus like died. Every single person that he healed in scripture eventually died. Lazarus was literally healed from death and then died again. And I think you even like think about the, the amount of miracles that Jesus did or the amount, of, I thought about this, think about the amount of miracles in the Bible. Uh, I think I may mention this, but like when you actually look at it all and you record how long the Bible's been around, you're like, according to this, that's not that many. Like it's really not like millions and millions of miracles. It's small moments where God, you said, is intervening to make his will known for a purpose and a reason. So there's been suffering. That's been the that's been the like the the default setting on us humans since the fall. Since, it's like yeah. we are going to suffer. And so the question of why suffering exists should never have to do with why God exists or doesn't exist. It's the default. It's just the default. We we are going to suffer. And and to be honest, Every religion has to <laughs> grapple with this. And you know what they basically all say is just embrace it to a certain extent. Like, it's going to happen. There's nothing you can do because we're limited. Well, now when it comes to the problem of evil, that's a different question. And I think every other religion, too, what's, what's interesting in, in light of Christianity, every other religion says, well, the, the cure to suffering is, is rooted in your works. Mm -hmm. Like, ultimately, the better you are, the less you'll suffer. Jesus was realistic enough to just go, look, you're going to suffer either way. You might as well suffer for doing good. Yep. Like you might as well know when you're suffering that you're doing the will of God. And I'm not promising if you do the will of God, you're not going to suffer. It's actually promised in Scripture that the more you do the will of God, it seems like the more you'll suffer. Yeah. But let's, let, I think there's something underpinning all of this uh -huh. that I think we should talk about. Like, is pain bad? I think that is the question yep. that really underpins all of this. Is pain bad? I, I mean, no. You, people who physically have the, the lack of being able to feel pain, they can get themselves into problems. So there's, we're talking about the problem of pain, and then there's the problem of not having pain. And in the end, it can cause so much more, more problems because it's a lack of knowing where those boundaries are. I can actually tell a, a good story to that. Yeah. In college, because me and Pastor Dave have neuropathy, like here down like we can't really feel so in college one time you know like those thumbtacks you know like the flat oh, perfectly flat thumbtack yeah you ready for this everybody take a deep breath ah. not, not like the push pins like the flat thumbtacks i found one of those in my big toe oh. on the bottom of my big toe and when i pulled it out no blood followed 
which means it had been there for a hot second, and I didn't know that. So one day I went to just like go like, I'm like, what in the world is that? And I pulled my foot up, and I was like, <gasps> and I pulled it out, and nothing came out. Kind of scary, right? It's why I wear water shoes at the beach, because my lack of pain yeah. in that specific situation I don't know the boundaries a lot of times, so I have to have extra protection. Like, I have, a, I have a cousin who, like, fell asleep, the same disease. He fell asleep with his feet on, like, a heater at the end of his bed camping, like a, a, radi like a, a radiator heater, and he didn't realize it and got, like, third-degree burns on his legs because he slept that way all night. So I think it's a really – sorry, I'm not trying to – like it's, it's fine. Like, we're all right. But, like, I think it's a good illustration of yeah. what you said, that, like, a lack of pain actually, like, ouch, that hurts is – is the boundary. Yeah. Like, okay, I'm beginning to feel that pain. That's how I know to backpedal a little bit or to, if it's something that, and I guess maybe this is the question, is all pain a boundary from which I must backpedal? I think that's Sometimes the question. Sometimes a pain is the creation of the joy through that pain. That's good. Like, when you work so hard on something and you see it in its full creation, that's so enjoyable to watch. Like, I think we were talking about this idea that no pain, no. Okay. So, like, when you're, there's nothing better than watching, like, the final end of the movie, you know, like, where you see them and they finally get there yeah. after all, like, the football movies where it's like, they can't do it. You're too dumb, bro. The kid's, like, sitting on the sidelines. They're like, come on in. And he makes the winning Left side. Strong side. Like, and they lift yeah. him up. Why is that lifting up moment when they're lifting yeah, him up and celebrating him. Why is that so powerful? It's only powerful because of the pain. There's not a single story, as a storyteller, there's not a single story where there first isn't the conflict. You have to have conflict. You have to yeah. have conflicts in order for the story to happen, in order for the story to work. Otherwise, people are watching this and going, this movie sucks. <laughs> it's it is literally fun. why people hate Hallmark movies and why people love Hallmark movies. So the people who love Hallmark movies love Hallmark movies because there's no real conflict. Nothing really all that bad happens, and they just don't want to have to feel anything. It's just this Everyone moment. else is like, this is the most boring thing I've ever seen in my life. And you're not processing why, but ultimately it's because there was no pain. Like when Batman goes and trains with Ra's al Ghul and like has to like make his way back, and what he goes through like to become the hero that Gotham needs, nay deserves that's different than uh-oh my last boyfriend broke up with me and so now i need another boyfriend before the christmas party i have to have a date because i'm gonna rsvp I'm, I'm without a, a boyfriend on faith that one's like you listen to that you're like dude that's not real problems yeah. that's not that's not real and you intrinsically know that when there's a lack of pain, there's a lack of conflict, there's a lack of, um, there's a lack of pushing the story forward. Like, there's a reason that ice baths are so popular right now. Why is that? That sounds awful. I was talking to Pastor Dan, and he was like, he doesn't do ice baths. He just gets in the shower and then turns it on. You know, it's not even a cold shower. He just doesn't wait for the water to warm up oh, before he gets in. He just he stands there while the water becomes warm. And I was like, man, that's like, that's the version of it maybe I could do, but I still haven't tried it because it sounds awful. It's just torment. But why are people doing it? Why is it so trendy? 
because we recognize that from the pain, there seems to be great physiological, physical and biological gain. There seems to be, at a cellular level, something positive that comes from the painful experience. And we all know this. It's why people work out. It's why they study hard. It's why they put in a lot of effort into projects. It's why they try really hard and focus at work because the pain and the lost evenings and the lost free times might end up leading to the promotion. And we recognize that there is ultimately a gain in the long run that is worth the pain in the short term. And it's so intrinsic to like how humans operate every day. And yet all of our questions are like, well, if God's real, then why do I feel pain? You're like, well, why do you work out? What, what kind of question is that? If God is real, why do I have to work? Hey, that's actually a good question. If God's real, why do I have to work out? I will grapple with that one the rest of my life. What were you saying? There's this idea too. uh, I love, he's a, um, this like Russian philosopher, he basically paints this picture and he says, if you let man essentially just eat as much as he wants and do everything that feels good and stuff like that, you know what, God, you know what people are going to do? They're going to just find a way to cause problems because yes. we like to feel something about being human. And pain is so intrinsic to humanity that if someone doesn't feel even like emotional pain, they're like inhuman. There's actually a word like psychopaths. Like yes. they don't feel emotional empathy. pain. Yeah. Yeah. They don't feel empathy for you. And so we would say they're actually less like we would say that they're not developed in, in their in their humanity. And, and we would call them inhumane in a sense if they're struggling with that because it leads them to bad, terrible things. It leads them to cause more pain than other people because they can't they can't sympathize with the pain of other people. And so this idea of pain is so part of us. It's almost like weird and, and non-human to be able to communicate to someone who doesn't experience that type of pain mm-hmm. and who doesn't experience any emotional pain. Even if it's physical pain, they're not experiencing that emotional pain. And I think that it's, become, it, it's so embedded with us. So if we're asking God to remove all this, what we're saying is remove the thing within our lives at this point before heaven, obviously, that makes us human. It, this is Suffering is what binds us together in a sense. It's like when you have to go through something and you go through with someone, your like soul is tighter with them in a sense. Mm-hmm. Like it's why uh, the military, they leave and they have such a tight connection because yeah. the, the pain that they face, they face together. And if everyone's just, uh, think about this, like uh, if everyone's just like, everything's going great and amazing, you don't, you see like those guys from Dubai, like climbing up on tops of buildings and standing on the edge. You ever see those crazy weirdos? <laughs> You're saying like that's the byproduct of like the, like no what they, problems. What they're doing is they're saying everything's so been true. handed to me. Yeah. Everything's been handed to me. I don't experience much pain because I've been handed so much money, so much opportunity. And so I have to do something to bring myself close to the edge, literally and metaphorically, in order to experience something of what it means to be a human. Because as humans, we, we, we have to face this suffering in a sense that creates courageousness. And, and, and it's not just like frilly language. It's embedded within us. Like God embedded within us this spirit to face pain and to face it to get to the other side for a cause. And so if evil is the intentional cause of suffering and pain for no reason, then that means that suffering and pain for a reason is is part of our meaning as, as humans. 
It's part of what we do. And that's part why, of the call. That's why, like, I, I read this verse in Romans, Romans 5. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So what he's saying is you will go through suffering, but it's not mm -hmm. for no reason. So we have these two alternatives. We have God loves us, cares for us. He obviously knows that we're going to suffer, but he's not going to not give us something or he's going to give us a purpose in the midst of suffering. It produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope, that I can receive hope from the Lord when I'm in the midst of suffering. Or the alternative is I suffer for no reason, that everything that happens is suffering for no reason, the exact definition of evil. So I can live a life of good in the following God, or I can live a life where when I suffer, when I stub my toe, there's no reason. I can't get any lesson from that. When I fall or when I'm in some sort of emotional, maybe I'm in a breakup or a family member dies, there's no reason. I can't, I can't really find a, a purpose out of that. It's just, it's, it's just evil because you're suffering for no reason. And, and, and I think a lot of times uh, people can look at it that way, but what's so good about being a Christian, it's not just us feeding our hopeless uh, 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 optimism into it. But it's us going, I know this sucks, and I know this is terrible, and this is hard to grapple with, but I'm going to just try my best through the Holy Spirit to, uh, to receive some hope in the midst of the suffering. Mm. Because there has to be. This is how I get through it. There has to be hope. There has to be a purpose for this. And God's purposes are way higher than ours. Mm. And that doesn't always mean that it's going to be good. I think uh, we were talking about this idea. It's like, you ever see like, uh, like the classic, like Pinterest, like uh, God has a purpose and a plan for your life. You know what I'm saying? I saw this one where it was like God has a purpose and a plan for your life, and it's like these early Christians being like killed by lions in the Colosseum. God's got a purpose and a plan for your life with all this like frilly font, and it's these Christians being mauled by. And and our today our Christian like Christians today go like, <gasps> but the early Christians, you know what they said? Yes, He does. Mm -hmm. And if that's my purpose, my plan, I still know that it's good because I look at the full scope of eternity. I have my eyes fixed on eternity. When we have our eyes fixed on the here and now in this moment, it's like this, 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 what's around me. It's so hard for me to see into the eternity. Mm -hmm. And so one of the other, uh, I would say, like ways to combat this thought process, this theodicy, um, ways to use this is the eternity argument, which essentially goes, you have a bad day. I heard this one time. You, you have one bad day. Does anyone have a bad day? Okay, you have one terrible day, and then the rest of your year is like perfect. And someone asks you, how was your year? What are you gonna say? Great. You're not gonna be like, that one day ruined it. Think about eternity. Think about what you get. You suffer through today, in this age, and it, it might be terrible. It might be like the worst day ever. And when I say day, I mean your life. And you die, and you're in heaven for eternity. In two billion years, what are you going to be thinking about? Oh, that one day. No, you're going to be thinking about, bro, I'm up here, we're partying, and it's awesome. And when we can know the scope of it, and that's what, that's what I love about Christians, and, and, and Christ, obviously, duh, but like our mindset, we get to see the full picture. We, get to, we might not know exactly why it all happened in the, in the way that it happened, but we get to see such a longer process. And we can trust God that he sees that process outside of time. He sees that process outside of 
the limitations that I'm in. And he sees a purpose in the midst of suffering. The, the, real, the real point of this is purpose. What's yeah, the purpose? and I think it's really interesting, too, because suffering is not just, like, purposeful. It is literally the call. Like, it is, like, come and die is literally the call of Christ. Like, he makes it so clear, like, unless you're willing to pick up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of me. Like, unless you, by, by comparison to your love for me, unless you hate your mother, mother father, brothers, sisters, you don't actually love me. Like, whoever gains his life is going to lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he will find it. Like, he promises in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And then look at the call. Look at the, the promise inherent in the suffering. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. We all go, well, like, if God's good, well, then why can't I share in his glory? He goes, you can't. I promise you can share in the glory of Christ. Just also, asterisk, just also share in the sufferings of Christ. We, what we mean is, if God's good, why can't I, without any cost to myself, share in the glory of Christ? If God's good, why can't I, for free, at zero cost to me, why can't I experience this glory? And that's not how it works. And we know this. Even, yeah. even atheists know this. This is, like in, this is built into mankind. It's why when a soldier goes away and through suffering gives of themselves on behalf of their nation, we have such deep honor and respect for that. We don't have to be taught that. We go, they willingly died? They willingly lost a limb for us? Wow. Something moves in the heart of an atheist. Something moves in the heart of a human being because we were hardwired to respect, to honor, sacrifice, and suffering. Suffering with a purpose. We were hardwired this way. It means something really innate to us. And it's because the promise is that if we... If we will share in his sufferings, if you'll not make it about, okay, well, if God was real, then I wouldn't have to suffer. You just go, look, he's a father. He's my father. And I don't get it, but I trust him. Like, I don't understand, but I trust you. And I trust that your word that you claim to be true is true. And I've seen the way it's played out in so many wonderful people throughout history that they understood and they took seriously if I share in his sufferings then I might also share in his glory. I want to just share this, and then I'll, I'll tell a quick story before I, I let you take it away. I heard someone say, as I was listening to a, a lecture on this, Dr. David Campbell said, overcoming fear through suffering is often the beginning of our usefulness for God. Overcoming fear, because what happens is you go through suffering, and you go, oh, I made it. You either make it or you don't. So either you get to heaven and you go, it's not so bad because you didn't make it physically, or you make, make it through it in an earthly sense, and you go, I wouldn't want to do that again, but I see the good that came of it. Like, I, I'm not itching to go through that pain again, but I see what it produced, and I would not want to lose what it produced for anything. We know that. We know it's built into even people who don't respect God as creator. We know that the going through pain on the other side, produces something. Pastor Tyler read it. It produces perseverance when our faith is tested. We know this. Overcoming fear. And what happens is when I go through something that I'm afraid of and I just suffer through it, I'm not afraid anymore. 
There's a different level of intimacy that I just shared with it that it does not scare me the way it once did because I know that I already did it and I'm still here. I'm on the other side of it. And so overcoming fear actually only comes through suffering. You can't overcome fear any other way than by to suffer under the thing by which you are afraid. And overcoming fear, Dr. David Campbell says, through suffering is often the beginning of our usefulness for God. It's when we start to be, it's when God can really get a hold of your life and use you for the things that he wants to use you for. When God, when God can actually start getting to the heart of doing what he wants to do with you, it's when you're no longer afraid of suffering. I think Peter says it. It's in the New Testament. I think Peter says it. He says, he who has suffered in the body has done away with sin. Why? Because they just understood if you're going through pain on behalf of Jesus, you're not screwing around with whether or not you're going to be with this bad person or not. You're not screwing around with wasting your time on frivolous things. Why? Because there's bigger fish to fry. Because you recognize that you are suffering with purpose on behalf of King Jesus that I might also share in the glory. I heard a quote by C.S. Lewis. He said, God's, God whispers in our joys and shouts in our pain. Pain is so deep and understandable by the human condition uh, because we all go through it. The first book in the, in the Bible ever written, not the first book that you find when you leaf through the pages, but the first book ever written in the Old Testament was the book of Job. If you ever read Job, um, Job was a man who was righteous. And he was actually righteous because the writer of Job says it, and God himself says it. He's, he's bragging. He's like, have you seen my servant Job? He's pretty awesome. And God basically removes himself from the situation to allow evil and allow suffering to test Job. And Job's sitting there with all his children dead, with a nagging wife, covered in boils, sitting at the, on, the, on, the he, on these heaps of ashes, sitting there, going, why? Why? This is the first book ever written in the Bible. The oldest book is the problem of why we go through pain. And Job, he says this, Job 7.20, if I have sinned, what have I done to you? You who see everything we do, why have you made me your target? Have I become a burden to you? God, why, why is this happening? We can maybe answer theologically why something, why God permits pain. But to know the ins and outs as to what his will is, we don't. We never will. Uh, we will, one day. We never will on earth, uh, maybe. Unless he reveals it to you, he gives you a, a vision as to why something happened. But the default is God says trust. And, and, and here's what I love about the book of Job. Job is going through all this pain, all this turmoil. His friends come around and going, bro, you did something to deserve this. He's going, dude, I did not. I didn't do anything. His wife's nagging him, be like, curse God and just die. Get it over with. Job never cursed him, but he came really close and he talked to God, like the way he talks to God sometimes, I'm like, man, that would scare me talking to God like that. That would be, like, some people would be like, that's blasphemous, the way he's talking to God. And God said he never did me wrong because he stuck with me, even though he might have said the wrong thing the wrong way, 
even though he might not have had the correct posture to receive it, even though he wasn't joyful in the midst of it, he still said, God, I'm sticking by you. But he still asked the question, God, why? Why, do, why, why am I your target? Why have you done this to me? Why, do, why does it have to be me in this situation? And you know what God says? He never answers them. God says, I'm God. He says, where were you when I created everything, when I did this and this, and I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you, Job? You don't know what I know. If you read the book of Job, you won't find that answer. We still don't know why Job went through it all. We still don't know why. After thousands of years, after tons of commentaries, after a bunch of theologians wrestling over this idea, after thousands and millions of people probably hearing this story, we don't know why. But we know, and the one answer that God gave him was that God is in control. And there is a purpose. There is a purpose. And there's a reason. And, and, and his ways and his thoughts are higher. It doesn't just mean that he knows more. It means he knows everything. God can't learn because he knows everything. Isn't that crazy? I love that thought. He, he knows what's going to happen. He knows the end. And so just because I might not have the exact uh, knowledge as to why this thing happened or, or why it happened this way, I can at least know what Job was told by God, which is God saying, I'm in control. So you can trust. You can trust someone who's in control. We were flying a plane one time. I was flying Spirit, which I don't recommend, okay? And the plane's like, starts going crazy. You start freaking out. How much less would you, how much more would you be freaking out if you found the pilot isn't at the wheel? That he's not actually flying the plane. God's, he, he's flying the plane. He knows where it's going to go and how he's going to land it. And it might not be our will, but it will be his. And if you can align yourself to his will, you can, in the midst of any turbulence, trust in the end. That end might not look like the way you want it. It might not look like you getting that, uh, that girl or that promotion. or It might not look like you getting that one thing or, or life being easy. It's not going to be easy. It will never be easy. It was never promised you to be easy. But he was, but he's always promised that he will be there in the midst of it. And that in the end, not end like the end of the year or the end of this week, but in eternity, you will spend it with him and it will be good. And he has a purpose and a plan for your life. Even if it looks very, very hard. He's flying the plane. He's in control. Where were you? Where were you when God made the foundation of the earth? Who are we to question creator? That is a sufficient answer. And the reason I know it's sufficient is because that's God's answer. And it's sufficient because it gives us trust and faith and hope in the midst of all of our circumstances. So can you stand with me tonight? As we just endure in trusting God in the midst of whatever you're going through, if you're going through something, pain, anger, frustration at somebody, if you're going through uh, physical pain or physical uh, problems, or you know someone who's going through something that you're like, man, that just, I don't want that to happen to them. 
or man, they're going through something. It is such a, they're suffering. They're suffering through this. We can pray. We can believe in miracles. We can pray for them. But we have to pray with a, a heart that trusts. God, your ways are higher than mine. Your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And when I set my mind on the things above, and my heart on the things above, what I'm doing is I'm saying, God, your eternity is much longer than my now, than what's happening in the moment. It's so much bigger. So I will trust in your will over mine. If, uh, if any of you have struggled with God, or you're like, I don't know where he's at, or maybe you're just saying, God, I, I want to trust in the midst of a world that's suffering. You have two options. You can either trust in the mysteries of God, and there'll still be a mystery, or you can trust in the mysteries of a purposeless life in which suffering means nothing, and you'll have ignorance as to why, and that ignorance doesn't matter because there's no reason through the suffering. If you say, I want that Christ, I want that God who can come into my life and give me purpose in the midst of problems, give me purpose in the midst of pain. What I want us to do is bow our heads and close our eyes. And I'm going to say a prayer, but before I do, I want you to just indicate with a hand. And that hand is saying, it's not saving you, it's just saying, I need that God to come into my life. If that's you, if you say, I need Jesus in my life, I want you to just raise your hand and put it down. Thank you. I need Jesus. I'm going to go through pain. Pain is promised, but I want a reason. I, want, I need a purpose in the midst of it. Anyone else? Okay. I want us all to say this. We're going to go back into a time where we uh, just proclaim the trust we have in Jesus, but I want us to say this prayer together. Say this with me. Say, Jesus, I believe there's a purpose for my life it might not be fun. It might not be always what I'd like it to be. But I trust you. And I believe in your ways. I believe in your purpose. God, I will follow you the rest of my life and into eternity. Everybody in the house said, come on, say it with me. Amen. Amen. Come on, give a hand for Jesus.